This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Ryan Pistorius, and I'll be your host for today. We're joined by Professor Anthony Damesis of the University of Ottawa, here to discuss the recent Supreme Court decision in Uber and Heller. Professor Damesis, thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. It's also a pleasure to hear that people are interested in this case. Certainly. I mean, I know I've seen people posting about it on the class Facebook pages, which isn't typical for most Supreme Court cases. Uh, I think this has definitely generated a lot of interest, and I'm sure our listeners will be very grateful for any insights that you can share. Well, I'm, I'm happy to offer many, as many as I, I can, and I'll do my best not to get too esoteric. <laughs> I do think the decision has some gaping errors, but uh, we'll, we'll get to those eventually. I look forward to it. And look, esoteric is fine. You know, I'm, I'm really just here to help facilitate your show. I really want you to be able to explain to us what the impacts of the decision are in your view, where the errors were made, what parts the Supreme Court got right, if any. And so if you don't mind, could you maybe just start off by explaining, for those of our listeners who haven't been following the case, Mr. Heller was an Uber driver uh, who tried to sue Uber in a class action, and then we ended up in a debate about arbitration. So what was going on here? So I think there are two ways to think about this case. There is a a very big social side to the case, and that's the one that I think the press is most interested in. And then there is the rather technical point, which was really what the Supreme Court decision was about. So it's a little less sexy, but as uh, lawyers and soon-to-be lawyers, it's, it is a critical decision because of what our justices had to say about arbitration and peripherally uh, the gig economy. That one, I don't think they knew what they're really, what mess they might be uh, creating. So there is a lot going on in this case, but on two different levels. I would say the first level that isn't really the technical part of the case is this decision is opening the door to seeing how our courts are going to address the gig economy, uh, which is really, to me, just a very fancy way of saying a new way of doing business. We have people who are not what we would think of as traditional employees, but they're not really what we contemplate as independent contractors. You know, for a long time, our law has basically sat in this world where either you're an employee or you're a business of some kind. You incorporate, you have the benefits of incorporation, and our laws are more or less built on this idea that, well, if you're a corporation, you have resources to take care of yourself. And if you're an employee, you don't. And the gig economy, which Uber drivers fall into, act like independent contractors as far as the way they tend to incorporate and the fact that they are not employees the way we usually think of employees. That is, they have no fixed hours. They don't have to go anywhere that their boss tells them to go. They can wake up and decide it's a beautiful day. I don't feel like working. On the other hand, they might be uh, insomniacs and 11 o'clock at night decide I wouldn't mind getting a couple of hours work done. So that's not usually how you think of employer-employee relationships. Uh, even at the university, I am an employee, frankly. They tell me, they give me a schedule. They give me an office. There is a computer at my disposal. I have access to the databases. So in a sense, the university gives me the tools to do my job. And while I think a lot of people think professors have a lot of freedom, in another way, we're quite, we're quite constrained. We have a certain number of credits we must teach during semesters that we can't say, I don't feel like teaching in the fall, so why don't we create a whole new semester that runs only in August? That really isn't how it works. So that, that's, that's kind of a, a starting point of thinking about this case and, and why it, it should be a significant case. Because in my view, and this is only my view, but I do worry that it won't be long before a lot of businesses just say, well, hold on, why do I need employees anymore? And when this case came out, I started to think about 
a restaurant, for example, why would a restaurant ever want to have employees for whom they have to pay benefits and everything else? Wouldn't it just be easier for a restaurant to say, if you want to work here, sign up on this app. And every morning, I'm going to look at my reservations and I'll send out a little tweet or whatever it is that goes out. And the first five people who say they want to work can work today in my restaurant. That would be a really efficient way to run a business. You have a lot of tables, you get people to come in. You have no tables, you don't have to pay anybody. And I think that's a dangerous world we're about to enter into. Because where will the employees rest? They, they really will have very few places to go. And that creates more than just precarious um, employment. It really creates this world where some people may never have a job and others who are willing to just you know, sit on their phone might have jobs. So that would be the big backdrop of this case. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court decision actually doesn't go anywhere like that. Right. It didn't touch those areas. It touched very technical points of arbitration. And uh, those technical points, uh, I, I believe the majority and the concurring decision uh, made even more technical. So it's a bit of a problem. Uh, I'm a little confused because... You know, as you say, the court kind of avoided the question of employees, quote unquote, in the gig economy. Uh, and yet at the same time, at least the majority of the court deferred to the Arbitration Act, the, that is the Ontario Domestic Arbitration Act, apparently on the grounds that, well, this is an employment relationship and employment relationships aren't commercial in the same sense as other things that would be covered by the ICAA, by the uh, International Commercial Arbitration Act. So at the same time, they've defined it in the scope of some sort of employment to say that the International Commercial Arbitration Act shouldn't apply, which, by the way, was a little strange to me because I would probably read commercial to be quite broad, but perhaps that's just me. But at the same time, they dodged the question of whether Mr. Heller was technically an employee. No, I mean, you're right on. You really you saw one of the problems of the majority's decision. They, their decision is based on an assumption that they didn't prove. And that's where, in fact, Justice Cote in her dissent made the point that the authorities on which the majority ostensibly relied on to feel comfortable saying that uh, the ICAA, the International Arbitration Act, doesn't cover these types of disputes, actually say the opposite of what they say they did. And so I found that very interesting that Justice Cote uh, didn't hold back. More or less, it's like telling somebody these authorities, you're either misstating them or you're not reading them properly because that was an important piece of the puzzle. And the first question you had to answer before knowing whether or not you can fall under the International Act or the Domestic Act was to try to define this relationship. And if, it, if it's an employee-employer relationship, then it's not commercial. And that's where the majority more or less, I think, felt it had to overcome that hump, really didn't have the equipment to prove their point. So they just more or less said, well, look, if we if we quickly look at the International Act, we see it's normally uh, dealing with commercial matters in this non-exhaustive list. And I emphasize non-exhaustive. It seems these kinds of disputes are not covered. Uh, employee-employer. Therefore, because I think he's an employee, uh, this is not commercial. Therefore, the International Act is off the table. I've kind of uh, softened it a bit, or I've, I've cut out a few of the words, but that seemed to be the gist of what uh, Justices Abella and Rowe, the, the two who wrote the majority, that was their launching point. And once they could overcome that hurdle, it's a lot easier for them to then move into the domestic act. Had they been forced to analyze it a little more uh, in depth, they probably or they could have fallen on the view that it's the international act that applies, because there's no doubt that the, that the the parties are from different countries, the Netherlands and uh, Ontario. Uh, the seat of the arbitration is outside of Canada which means that according to the International Act, it is an international dispute, and then they'd have to overcome or, or make the point about it being commercial. 
So yeah, I would agree that the International Act would seem to have been the the operative statute, and that itself has big implications on the analysis. But their analysis would not have worked if they relied on the International Act. So it's no surprise to me that they had to find a shortcut to assume Mr. Heller is an employee. And interestingly enough, he's going to have to actually prove this at the lower court because the case is going to go back. If you want to start a class action, he'll have to actually prove all these points. I wonder what would happen if he was then found not to be an employee at the lower court. Uh, I, uh, that's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. I do want to get into the differences in what would happen if the court had applied the International Commercial Arbitration Act, but I worry that we've gotten too quickly into the details. So I wonder if we can roll back for a second. Uh, for our listeners who are not familiar at all with international commercial arbitration generally, can you explain what regimes guide the process of arbitration, uh, what regimes apply in Ontario, what concepts are being engaged in this case? Yes, absolutely. And maybe I'll even start with a briefer on the difference between arbitration and the court process. Perfect. I'm sure everybody remembers their first year ADR courses where this difference is explained. Nevertheless, I'll just refresh your memories that I would I would say that the big difference between arbitration and the court is that arbitration is a private means of resolving disputes, whereas the court is a public means. And I start off with a view that it is only arbitration that is a true alternative dispute resolution, this famous ADR. I know others include mediation, negotiation in ADR, but uh, the reason I don't agree with that is I really respect words. And the word alternative has to mean something. It has to be an alternative to something else. And it has to be still within the same world. And, and the simple example I use is if I say today from school, I'm taking an alternative route to go home, I'm still going to end up at home. It just means I'm taking an alternative path. It is not an alternative to say today I'm taking an alternative route. That's not going to take me home. That's not an alternative path. That's just a different path and you're going somewhere else. And mediation is that. It takes you somewhere else, and you're, you're doing something else. Arbitration leads to a decision that is binding on the parties. Mediation does not. In an arbitration, just like in court, you have a decision maker who makes decisions based on the facts and law you've presented. In a mediation, there's no decision. And you don't always present law and facts. So I, that's why, as a starting point, ADR, I, I'm really suspicious of those who lump all these other forms of dispute resolution into ADR, just call them DR. So arbitration and court, those are really the, two, the, the alternatives. You either go to arbitration or to court. Why would you go to one over the other? Well, you would, you'd probably want to go to arbitration if your dispute is specialized, because unlike the court... In arbitration, you get to choose your decision maker. So whereas in court, you are given a judge who is a generalist, in arbitration, the parties choose their decision maker who is a specialist. Another reason you uh, might want to go to arbitration over the court is that it's a private process. Now, private doesn't mean confidential. For that, you need something, you need to add a term to your arbitration. But a private arbitration means that it's only the parties and the decision maker in the room, whereas in a court, everyone's allowed to come in, in principle. So those are some, some big differences between arbitration and court, but ultimately you're getting a very similar result. You're getting a decision that is enforceable. Now, the difference between international arbitration and domestic arbitration is an important one. And a very good authority, Jan Paulson, wrote an article <clears throat> where he basically said, arbitration, domestic arbitration and international arbitration are about as similar as a sea elephant is to a land elephant. <laughs> and it's a, it's a good visual. You know, the both have the word elephant in it, but the two are dis different animals. And while I don't know that the differences between domestic and international arbitration are that stark, the differences are important. And I'll just mention two. 
one substantive and one procedural. So in domestic arbitration, you are allowed to appeal your awards. And depending on the legislation, you can appeal for an error of law or error of fact. Very similar to the court process. In international arbitration, there is no appeal, which means the arbitrator made an error of law or fact. It doesn't matter. So that's a first pretty big difference. The second procedural difference is that if we just take Ontario as a jurisdiction, in a domestic arbitration, only licensed Ontario lawyers may represent a party in a domestic arbitration. In an international arbitration, a lawyer from any jurisdiction can represent a party. Now, these two differences, the lack of appeal and any lawyer can represent a party in an international arbitration, really speak to some of the broad differences between these two areas and different interests, which is why people, including our Supreme Court, that repeatedly say that there's no real difference between the two, insofar as they said in their discussion of which act applies, all three opinions, majority, concurrent, and dissent, all said the outcome would have been the same regardless of the act we're under. Well, they couldn't be more wrong. The interest in an international arbitration, the primary interest is a neutral forum. For example, if you have a dispute with a party from Venezuela, you're really concerned about ending having to end up in a court in Venezuela. That's why in international arbitration, you want a neutral forum. Also, when we speak of the procedural point about the lawyer, well, international arbitration has always understood that we're dealing with cross-border transactions, and a lot of companies are comfortable with the lawyers they know. How bizarre would it be to ask them to use a process that would exclude the very lawyers they're comfortable with? And that's why you have this rule that lawyers from any country can come and represent parties in international arbitration. Why in this case would Uber have wanted to have that arbitration take place in the Netherlands? You know, just to contextualize this case and those benefits in the context of this case, you know, Uber, I don't imagine would have any issue getting lawyers in Canada or any other jurisdiction. So what is the benefit to Uber of going to the Netherlands? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, the, 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 for me, the quickest benefit is here you have a company that has come up with an app. The app is intended to... You know, in its hope, every country in the world would use it. Every People in every country would use it. Now, if you're such a company, disputes can happen. Do you want to have to hire lawyers from 193 countries to possibly... Fair enough. You know, and the same goes with the laws. People say, oh, well, look at them. They're trying to use the law of the Netherlands to... Uh, to to make it unfair for Ontario drivers. I mean, even our Supreme Court falls into that. Uh, first, I, I'm not entirely sure that uh, it is some well-known fact that Dutch law is somehow unfair. In my experience, European laws are, are quite fair laws. Yeah, I thought we liked the Netherlands. Uh, th there you go, yes. And, and so that would be, the, the to me, the most immediate reason why a company in one location wants to draft a contract where it's the same for no matter who they deal with. And they'll know, they'll stick to what they know, which is Dutch law and the Netherlands as its seat of arbitration. And we're going to get into how that's not even, the, 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 the contract doesn't even mean that, but as a starting point, that would explain it. Now, I'll give you the other side of the coin, because I think it's, it's fair to know what the other arguments are. You know, the, the other side of it could be that a party says, well, it's a pretty good deterrent if I'm going to force people from around the world to have to travel to my country to come and sue me. That's one very powerful deterrent. And second, I think it's a little less so, but still you could say, and uh, I'm going to keep my advantage because I know my law. Now, I'm less convinced by that because a company actually is uh, located in the Netherlands, but I could see a good argument if, say, a, an Ontario company drafted its contracts to use, say, the law of Bermuda, which might have a very favorable point that helps the Ontario company, then you might say, boy, that's some crafty lawyering. I don't think that's what's happening with Uber. 
So that's the distinction between international and domestic arbitration acts. What, what, those are just a few. There are many more, but, but okay. I don't okay, want fair, uh, fair. people to tune out. <laughs> fair. Okay, but those are some of the distinctions. Uh, but so in this case, we had Mr. Heller, who was trying initially to start a class action against Uber. Uh, Uber stopped the action, or rather petitioned a court to stop the action, on the grounds that it had this arbitration clause. And the lower court, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, uh, agreed with Uber, if I recall correctly. Yes, correct. The judge said that, indeed, the arbitral tribunal has the competence to determine its own jurisdiction here. And on those grounds, the judge rejected Mr. Heller's claim. Yeah. And I think it's important at this point, especially for those who are not comfortable with arbitration or aren't so familiar with it, to understand that the only decisions that were or the only impact of these decisions is this. When a party agrees to arbitrate, or at least when there's an arbitration clause in a contract that the party has agreed to, the idea is that the parties have turned their mind to using this alternative place to resolve their disputes, in this case, arbitration. And all that was happening at the beginning was Mr. Heller went to an Ontario court to say, I have a grievance against Uber, Ontario court, please hear me out. Heller, Uber in turn turned around and said, well, he may have a grievance, but if you look at our contract, he agreed that should he have a grievance, he accepts to use arbitration to resolve it. So Ontario court, without making, without pronouncing on whether his grievance is accurate or not, please enforce the promise he made to arbitrate. And I mean, that's really all it was. And that's why the Superior Court, Justice Patel, said, to my eyes, I do see a contract and I do see an arbitration agreement inside of that contract. And I do see that you accepted this contract. So as a starting point, I'm going to allow the arbitration to move forward. Now, it could very well happen that in the arbitration, the arbitrator says, actually, I don't think this was a fair agreement. And if it's not a fair agreement, it means that my right to hear this dispute was never actually, there was no true formation of this contract. Therefore, go back to court. The whole point of arbitration, in order for it to work well, is to allow this referral. In other words, for the courts to say on a surface level, and that's what the, the, that's the investigation. It's not a mini trial, and everybody has agreed on that. It's really... A first look, sometimes a what we call a prima facie look of the documents, so the contract and the arbitration agreement, is there an arguable arbitration agreement? And if the answer is yes, let the arbitrator resolve the dispute. And that dispute would include whether or not the arguable agreement to arbitrate is in fact a true agreement. And I think that's the part that a lot of people have a hard time turning their minds to. That gets into one of the places where the Ontario Court of Appeal got it wrong, right? is this competence-competence principle, yes. this idea that arbitration, that, that arbitral tribunals have the competence to determine their own competence, and that would include the validity of the arbitration clause itself, right? Exactly. And and this, this rule of competence-competence, which courts, including our Supreme Court, have, have agreed exists, to me it's just lip service, uh, to really understand why it's there, you need to understand why it was created. And here's why. If, you, if a party could get out of its promise to arbitrate merely by raising an argument that they think the arbitration agreement is invalid, well, then what is the value of an arbitration agreement? Anyone can get out of it. And that's what used to happen in the old days of arbitration. It's why, to me, it's a shame that our court has not read books on arbitration before uh, giving us a decision. Because if, if they read more, they might have not made some of the decisions they made. And in reading the history of arbitration, you realize this idea of competence, competence, which can seem jarring at first, that you're allowing an arbitrator to determine his or her own jurisdiction, is imperative to this process. Otherwise, every single time somebody wants to get out of an arbitration or simply wants to cause the other party unnecessary delay and expense, all they have to say is, well, I actually think the arbitration agreement is invalid, so 
Certainly, we can't go to arbitration to hear this. Court, please hear my case. So the courts then seem to, at least both the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, seem to have struggled a little bit with their understanding of competence, competence, you know, with their with their own competence, competence, competence. Yeah. But what are the scenarios in which courts actually should get involved, or at least in which they could get involved? You know, at what yes. point do we say, courts, okay, fine, now you can step in? Yeah, and there, there, there are a few of them. Uh, the, the most obvious one would be if, if it's obvious on the face of the documents that there is no arbitration agreement or the agreement itself is an invalid one on its face for contract reasons, maybe there is a missing, you know, sometimes we speak of it of if the, if the arbitration agreement is so defective, in other words, you don't even know, is this a true requirement to arbitrate or is there a missing signature or is the wrong party named? court has no re- is not obliged to send you to arbitration at that point on the face of it this is not a valid arbitration agreement so it, there are there are instances where the court won't have to do this another simple would example would be an incapacity i mean i think that's where this case tries to fall into and if you're dealing with a minor there's no way you're going to send them off to arbitration you say well that's an invalid contract the question here is is mr heller when he signed this agreement was there such an incompetence? And I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, I mean in a legal sense. Was there an incapacity of some kind? And the majority believe that there was. So this is where we get into these questions about unconscionability, right? Where exactly. the Supreme Court said that this, uh, you know, because of the significant difference in bargaining power between Mr. Heller and Uber, uh, that the arbitration agreement was actually unconscionable, right? That's right. Is that, is that the idea? No, that's right. So the the majority view is that they look at unconscionability. They 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 seem to put it into two parts, but when you break it down, you start wondering: Is this really just one part? Uh, but the basic idea is that they say first there has to be an imbalance of bargaining power, and second, an improvident deal. So a fancy way of saying. If there's a if one party to this agreement has way too much power over the other, that's already a red flag. And next, well, let's actually look at the deal. And if it's such a bad deal, then that red flag is probably there for a good reason. That's the, the, the idea behind the way the majority framed their unconscionability uh, discussion. But when you break down what they actually said, well, what they said was, Obviously, Uber has more bargaining power than Mr. Heller, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And the reason they then said it's an improvident deal is that, and it costs $14,500 to commence a dispute. And then they put that into context that Mr. Heller maybe makes $30,000 to $40,000 a year. It seems as though no person would agree to such a clause. And they might very well be right. The problem is they didn't rely on on much evidence to to prove that. We don't know. Mr. Heller, for his part, could have been uh, very well off. Now, there was some evidence at the lower courts where he said, no, no, I I only have a high school diploma and this is my full-time job. But this is where I think Justice Cote made a few interesting points. She said, well, first of all, Majority, you're telling me that fourteen thousand five hundred, and to be fair, that's U.S. dollars, so about I don't know eighteen, eighteen, nineteen thousand, uh, is too much. And yet we know at the Court of Appeal, Mr. Heller received about twenty thousand dollars in costs, which means the court assessed that he was somehow able to raise that money and use it to go to court. So already, uh, I don't know that this position that twenty thousand is too much to bring a claim really makes uh, much sense. But fair enough, there it is. The court, uh, the majority at the very least then um, created, which for me was the big problem, this new ground, this new standard maybe of when the court can use discretion in the face of an otherwise valid arbitration agreement to not. Yeah, that's, and, and this, it's, you know, I am not a fan of standards that have no content. And all they told us was, if there's a, and these, this, these are the magic words, a real prospect that the matter won't go to arbitration, we have the discretion not to send it. What, what does that mean? 
who's I guess it's the court that determines whether there's a real prospect. And and what is that based on? One party saying, trust me, I'm not going to go to arbitration. It's 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 a little problematic to me. I, I, at least I find the terms are vague. And given that their decision, because they all said my the outcome would have been the same whether this was domestic or international as an international arbitration uh, person, it's really problematic because now they've built in a new standard, a new ground to refuse to refer that will apply, at least in Canada, equally to international arbitration. And I assure you, when the international community sees this, Canada will not be viewed as a safe place to do arbitration. So they'll just think we're the Wild West over here. <laughs> so that was how the court distinguished this case from Dell, right? Was that they had this idea that had previously been accepted at the Supreme Court in Dell that, well, hey, we need to give arbitral tribunals the opportunity to, you know, as you said, they've recognized competence, competence before. But in this case, they said, well, here, we don't think this will end up getting to arbitration. You know, that, that there's this chance at a real prospect, that, that real prospect test. And on that basis, well, we'll throw this out. That's right. Yeah, that's what I mean by it's lip service. They say this decision, they laud it. Oh, what a wonderful decision. And, they, and we know that the decision tells us we can't do such things. In fact, as Justice Cote points out, the dissent in Dell tried to run the same game and they were cut at the legs by the majority. So here we have our current court saying, oh, yes, we respect Dell. We know exactly what it means, but we're going to do the opposite or we're not really going to respect it because that's really what it's not. They would like to call this an incremental change. It's not an incremental change. It's giving discretion and it's a discretion on top of discretion. Because this ground of unconscionability is itself a discretionary world. We're now falling into the fairness side of the law, the equitable side of the law. And there are very few rules on that side of the law, and deliberately so, because it's a corrective part of our law. We have our small c common law that has rules. And when those rules lead to an absurd result or an unfair result, well, the door opens to these other equities that the courts can tap into, and unconscionability is one of them. So unconscionability effectively allows a court to say, look, I'm looking at this contract, and I guess it looks right. I can't really put my finger on it, but something doesn't smell right, therefore I'm going to call it unconscionable. To say that that's an incremental change uh, you know, really takes us for fools. It's a big change. You're giving a lot of discretion back to the court. And This is why history is important. In 1986, when Canada acceded to the New York Convention and adopted the model throughout its jurisdictions, one of the major changes, including to their domestic law, was to remove discretion at this stage of the arbitration. We used to live in a world pre-1986 when our statutes on arbitration gave the courts a lot of discretion. But our we knew that by signing on and taking on these international obligations, it was important for Canada to show the world that we understand that we have to limit that discretion. In fact, eliminate it. Because when you look at the grounds, the grounds are very clear when you can refuse to send a case to arbitration. And this discretionary real prospect ground is, to me, a real problem. <laughs> Fair. I guess I have two questions. The first question I have on that is, on what basis was unconscionability assessed here? Because I, I know that there's been some discussion, uh, including by you in previous works, that one of the issues at the Court of Appeal level was that the court measured unconscionability today, as opposed to measuring it at the time of the contract, of the agreement, and that that introduced a, an outcome bias into the decision. Was the Supreme Court subject to the same bias, or did they adjust their assessment and go back to the Turcon test? Well, they did not. Well, Justice Brown's concurring decision he made a bit of a, he made reference to Turcon. I don't know that he applied it uh, the way uh, I would have, uh, would have applied it. I know how that sounds, but I, I did write about this. 
And the way I explained it was to say, if you're looking for a test to use to determine whether you should enforce an arbitration agreement, why reinvent the wheel? Why not rely on Canadian law that already exists? After all, the idea behind a legal system is consistency and that the pieces should all build on one another. And we know from the Turcon decision, um, which I hope every first year law student remembers from the contracts the law case, uh, classes. Just please don't test me on it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. It, it took me a while to even understand it. So it's, it's, it's not easy as a first read. But the basic idea behind it was to say, yes, parties are allowed to use exclusion or limitation clauses. And those are clauses that say, even if I screw up, you can only come after me for $100. And in some cases, you can't come after me at all. Exclusion, entire exclusion or limitation. And those are difficult clauses to include in, in contracts when you think about just the whole contractual matrix that we're living in, because it's, it's starting to reach a point where you're almost saying, well, do you have an obligation or not? Because if you're allowed to excuse a breach of your obligation, I'm starting to wonder whether you have an obligation here. So that's what has always, and it, it pestered Lord Denning back in, in the 50s and 60s. It really bothered him, and rightly so. So anyway, Canada, after many years, came up with this decision, and, and it, it's basically a test that says, here you go. You're going to tell me you want to enforce this limitation uh, clause in this contract. I have three questions for you. Question one, can you show me that this clause actually applies to your dispute? Because sometimes you could have a dispute that deals with something that the clause doesn't cover. For example, you might say, in the event that what I deliver is faulty, you can't say anything about it. Well, what if the dispute is about something else? Not that it's faulty, but that, I don't know, it, uh, it, when you open the box, somebody came out and slapped you in the face. That's not about <laughs> the, it being faulty. It's some other bizarre issue, right? And then you'd say, no, that clause was not intended to cover those items. So I'm sorry, the clause doesn't work. But let's assume it does. The next one is to say, and this is where unconscionability comes in. It says, okay, at the time that you ostensibly agreed to this clause, talk to me about how that agreement happened. And that's where you get to say, well, you know, it was a hidden clause. Uh, the other party uh, was blindfolded when they agreed to that one. Whatever reason you want to come up with. And at that point, the court could say, well, that's unconscionable. That doesn't make sense that the other party never knew of this clause and that you hid it from them. Sorry, not enforced. Now, let's assume you had legal uh, you had lawyers giving you opinions, or at least you had a lot of time to think about it, because that's usually uh, an important piece of parties agreeing to a contract. Did you have enough time to think about it, or was it a rushed decision? So let's assume you're still fine. You get to the third part, and now you get to say, okay, here is a situation. This clause does apply. There is nothing wrong with how the parties agreed to this clause, so it's not unconscionable, but still... I don't want to live in a world where these clauses can work. And that would really be a public policy argument. The third stage is, is there a pressing policy reason why we shouldn't respect the fact that the clause applies and that you guys actually did agree to it? And it should be used sparingly. And that's what uh, Justice Binney and his dissent, which was picked up by the majority in Turcon, explained this three-part test to be. And all I suggested was, well, why don't we do this for arbitration agreements? Instead of breaking our backs trying to come up with these peculiar ways, these new standards, or as, the, as Justice Brown is trying to create a rule of law, which again is a throwback to about 40 years ago, why don't we just use this test, which seems pretty well suited? Does a clause apply? Sure. It's a dispute. And now the dispute is supposed to go to arbitration. Was there any unconscionability? Look, no, we're not going to bend over backwards or use some circular reasoning to find that it's unconscionable. Okay, do we want these clauses to work? Well, now you can come back and say, you know what? I recognize that Uber did nothing wrong in including this contract and really believe that people who wanted to use this app would have been happy to do this. But when I look at where we're going in the world, I'm not comfortable living in a world where somebody like Mr. Heller, who might have a dispute for a few hundred dollars, is forced to use a private dispute mechanism that will cost him 
more than a few hundred dollars and requires him to fly to Europe to resolve his dispute. And you could have just said it that way. Instead, they, you know, they, I don't know if it's just that Supreme Court judges like to come up with new tests and new analyses to make law students' lives miserable, but <laughs> that's what they seem to have done. So that would have been your your out here, right? Yeah, that would have been my solution. Okay. Yeah. And and what's nice about my solution is, you know, people on, on the face of it would look at me and say, well, he's a pro-arbitration guy. You know, he practiced, he still does arbitration, he teaches this, he writes on it. No, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a pro-arbitration. I'm a pro-law. We have a met that works for a lot of people, and sometimes it doesn't work. When it doesn't work, we should have a very clear way of dealing with how it doesn't work. And that's why, to me, that solution was simple. I didn't need to reinvent the wheel. I drew on previous uh, cases from the Supreme Court, and we've been told by that very court that it's quite important for a legal system to have consistency. So that it's not every two, three years we're changing the direction of our law. Well, this would have kept it on the same path. That was where I, I wanted to go. Because, you know, I, I understand the point about unconscionability, being careful with, with how we use that tool. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned briefly those principles of equity, and those are there for a reason. So from a social policy perspective, I'm trying to understand how to achieve a result that feels just in this case, um, I guess, and and understanding that is important. But it sounds like you have a very simple solution. Yes, oh, no, and, I, and I agree with that. And and I tell you, look, I, I would I know a lot of arbitration people, and a lot of them feel the same way. They're not here trying to force small players like Mister Heller into an arbitration that financially makes no sense. That's not that's not what arbitration was built for. At the same time, that doesn't mean they're going to throw out all the rules and just come up with, you know, frankly, a social science paper disguised as a legal opinion, which to me is what a lot of this decision reads like. Okay, so we've had the Supreme Court make some errors around unconscionability. Uh, we've had them make some errors around competence, competence. Was the rest of the decision good or were there... The, the size suggests the answer to that. but uh. I feel like I'm going to get into so much trouble after this. But okay, one, one I'll tell you a difficulty I had, and this is uh, maybe it speaks to some fairness here. So one of the arguments, I, I represented a party as an intervener in this case, and one of the argu arguments I raised in my factum and very briefly orally was to say, as we've already talked about, that properly speaking, when we look at this case, Dutch law should apply to answer the question of whether the clause is unconscionable. <clears throat> and the reason is, at the superior court, so the, the first level, the judge pointed out, hey, Dutch law applies. And there's an arbitration agreement. N no party objected to that. No party brought that as an, uh, to appeal. In other words, they didn't claim he, he had made an error in deciding that. At the Court of Appeal, Justice Nordheimer confirmed, you know what? This contract does have Dutch law as an applicable law, and yeah, I guess it applies. So now we have a finding in the lower and the appeal court that Dutch law applies. We now move on to the Supreme Court, and at paragraph 50, and, and I'm of two minds here, because paragraph 50 of the majority decision on the one hand, I should be happy because they, they cite to my factum and they say, you know, he makes a good point. And then they finish it off. They say, too bad Uber didn't use it. And, and it's really, you know, when I first read that, I was like, oh, well, that's neat. Okay, I guess they were listening. But then I start thinking about it. And I'm like, well, that's a bit unfair to Uber. And I'm just turning to it right now where they say, this court should presume that Dutch law governs a question of whether the arbitration agreement is unconscionable. And then they finish off, if Uber had adduced evidence of Dutch law, then we would have had no choice but to grant in favor of arbitration. In other words, they're saying if they had adduced evidence, well, why do they need to do that when the lower courts have already said it does apply? What exactly is it that they're asking 
council to do here? To prove the content of Dutch law? Well, if that's true, then it, we already have to send it to arbitration as article as paragraph 50 tells us, because the moment, just to give a quick background on Dell, what Dell does tell us is if we need to do more than a superficial look at the law and fact to know this dispute, well, that's well beyond the court that has to go to an arbitrator. Well, the moment you start saying that, well, we have to look into Dutch law, you are well past a superficial inquiry. So I found that bizarre. So now we have uh, the majority saying more or less, look, you should have raised it. You didn't. So I can't help you. And then we have at paragraph 106, we have Justice Brown in his concurring opinion saying, and I'll just read it, while the parties did not argue this appeal on the basis of public policy, and here is the important words, we are, of course, not bound by the framing of their legal arguments. So which one is it? When, the, when, when a judge knows the answer, but the, other, but the party doesn't raise it, do they have to ignore it? Or do they have to ignore the fact that they're now ignoring it? Which one is it? This is from the same court in the same decision. And when I read stuff like this, well, it's, it's, it is confusing. And, and, and as a teacher, I get, you know, I read this and I think, well, what if I were to get a question? Somebody were to say, so uh, what is it? Well, I guess we'll have to do the majority because they're the majority, but that's not a good way to teach. So, I, I mean, and, and I'm, again, I, I'm, I'm, there's a little bit more to get into probably in all of this, but it is a bit difficult when, you know, I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of counsel for Uber. How would I feel after reading that? I might say, well, maybe if you had told me, or was I wrong to assume that everybody said it was that, that Dutch law applied and now suddenly you're, you're even conceding it probably does apply, but because I didn't tell you it applies, I'm now out, I'm out of luck. So that, that was troubling. The more specific thing seems to be that the, the criticism uh, comes with respect to that neither party led evidence of Dutch unconscionability law in particular. But that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that doesn't seem to be the, the question. The question is simply whether that Dutch unconscionability law would have applied. No, you're, you're right on. I'm, I, I have to tell I'm that is a, a very insightful observation because you're right. The question is not about whether or what the content of Dutch law is at this stage. Right. It will be important at the trial stage when you're really looking into it. But at the stage of referral, the only relevant question is, does Dutch law apply? And if the answer is yes, you have to send it to the arbitrators. So it is a, a, an important question. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And they seem the court seems to be suggesting that now they need to know the content of Dutch law in order, I suppose, to determine whether its content is itself an affront to Ontario law and is therefore unconscionable. But none of that was part of the argument. And yet that seems to be what's being referenced there. I don't know how this is. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what to take from this, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, um, so I would invite everybody to to read the decision. Of course, I've read it. Um, I read it first on Friday when it was released. I then took a break to let my thoughts simmer. I then went back <laughs> and spent yesterday going through every paragraph. And uh, and I and I mentioned this also for law students, just to put this in perspective. I was involved in this case. I've written about the case. This is my area. I teach this area, and I still needed to read it carefully and more than once to really grasp what's going on, and I'm sure I've still missed stuff. So I just mentioned this to students out there who feel frustrated that when they read a case before class and they think, I don't know what's going on, don't worry about it. You will develop that muscle. You just have to keep going. And when you're worried about that, think of me, somebody who should be able to look at this once and get it all. I still have to take the time to really think about what's being written, what's being said, what's not being said, what's being missed. I mean, it's just the life of, uh, of a lawyer. Fair. Well, 
Okay, so that we make sure that we get it all here, is there anything that you and I haven't discussed yet that you think that our listeners should know about the case or about its impacts or anything like that? Well, okay, I'm going to now, now that I've said what was probably not some very nice things, I'm going to say a few <laughs> nice things about the case. Okay, balance it out. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> Look, I, I do think, especially Justice Brown's concurring decision, from a thousand foot look, I really understand what he was saying. And it, it is a nice way to think about justice because his was very much clothed as an access to justice argument. And I think he is right insofar as, you know, I think of it a little bit differently. I, again, return to old ideas of contract law, illusory consideration, right? The idea that on its face, something can look like a contract, but actually it's an illusion, just like a really good magic trick. It's not quite there. When you touch it, there's nothing there. And so I appreciate that what Justice Brown was getting at is to say, when I look at this, I really have to ask myself, I know that they, there's an agreement to arbitrate, but if ultimately the price of entry means that nobody's ever going to enter, then this is an illusion. It's not a real agreement to arbitrate. And I agree with him. Those kinds of agreements where they are illusory you need to be very careful because otherwise that now companies can can abuse the law and abuse arbitration, which I like arbitration, so I don't want it to be abused. I just don't think that what was before the court was enough to reach those conclusions. Because now, well, look, with the, the way the court has set it out, when you start off with any time you have a big company and a smaller company, this is automatic, almost automatic, unconscionable. And then what is an improvident deal without giving me an objective standard of what does that mean? You know, do we, are we supposed to look at, well, let's use a really silly example, but if Bill Gates decided he wanted to become an Uber driver, is this an unconscionable agreement between Bill Gates and Uber? I mean, if so, just tell us. This is objectively unconscionable. I don't care how much money you have in your bank account. A transaction that requires you to use 50% of the maximum amount of money you can make in a year just to bring a claim is a problem. The difficulty is that with arbitration, it's not quite like that. With arbitration, first of all, the case did not have to be heard in the Netherlands. It could have been heard in Ontario. The fees, you get much more back in arbitration than you get in the court, right? I mean, if you're lucky in court, you're going to get your the full amount, your full costs. But even then, it's on a tariff. In other words, nobody ever gets the real amount of money they've spent on the case. Arbitration is different. When arbitrators are given the discretion, and most rules do, it is up to counsel to say, this entire arbitration costs me X amount. Here are my plane tickets. Here are my lawyer fees. Here's everything. And it's well within the arbitrator's right to say, I'm with you. This was a complete waste of time. This shouldn't have happened. You're getting all your costs. So in that vein, uh, would you have, or I guess, would you agree with Justice Cote's dissent, or at least the part of Justice Cote's dissent, which said that as long as Uber covered the initial costs, which removed the kind of access to justice element, that the case could have then proceeded to arbitration. Well, I, I do think it's a really good a good point she makes. It also feeds into when you look at the majority's decision on un, the, the basis of unconscionability seems to be the prohibitive cost. Even Justice Brown's concurring decision seems to, to say that. So if their real concern is big companies abusing it, well, all a big company has to do is say, we will take care of the reasonable costs and we'll have the arbitration in your home jurisdiction. I don't think that fixes the problem that really lurks beneath the majority and concurrent opinions views. So I do think it's interesting. That's an interesting point by Justice Cote. And it's not that I'm dodging the question about what whether I like Justice Cote's dissent, but it is, I have to tell you, um, to me, she didn't have the an, an entire um, Rosetta Stone of arbitration with her because she really overstated the separability doctrine. 
she kind of got it backwards. And so when I read it, I, I did like some of her conclusions, but when I saw her do what she did to separability, I can't stand behind it. <laughs> because as somebody who teaches this area, for me to say, read her descent, it's a good descent. And then somebody reads her appreciation of separability. Well, I don't want to associate myself with that. Can, uh, can you explain? The long and short of it. Yes. So long and short of separability. <laughs> I'm so sorry no, no. to you know, keep I, asking. No, I'm happy to. I just hope the listeners are find this interesting. Of course, I do. I could talk about this all day, but I understand that not everybody is into the weeds. So separability is another foundational theory of arbitration. And what it basically says is, and again, it was created to protect against tricky little lawyers. So if you have a contract that has an arbitration agreement, in the old days, lawyers would run this kind of an argument. They'd say, well, you know, I actually don't mind going to arbitration, but here's the problem. The main contract, the contract itself is void. And if I'm right that the contract is void, surely the arbitration agreement contained in it is also void, and surely that means the tribunal has no jurisdiction, and that means even if you agree with me, tribunal, I'll have nothing to prove that I'm right because the whole thing is void. And it's a, it's a pretty powerful argument. So separability, the doctrine of separability came around to basically say this, okay, if you are making an argument that the main contract is void, that doesn't mean automatically that the arbitration agreement is void. You need to show me that the arbitration agreement itself is void. In other words, we are going to separate the arbitration agreement in this contract from the contract in order to preserve the tribunal's jurisdiction so that the tribunal can in fact conclude that the main contract is void and you still have an arbitration award that is fine as far as jurisdiction is concerned. And that was a way to, to kind of answer back those lawyers. So now they said, so now tell me, talk to me about this contract. Now, what did Justice Cote say about separability? She kind of got it backwards in the sense that she said, well, the fact that the arbitration agreement may be void, we can separate it from the other contract. And so we should still be talking about the, the rest of the contract, including Dutch law which again, I should like to go to the Dutch law, but I don't like because that's not how separability is supposed to work. It only works in one direction, to protect the integrity of the tribunal when somebody is attacking the main contract. If you're attacking the arbitration agreement, there is no need to separate. You're simply saying that term is invalid and it's just another term of the contract. So uh, uh, maybe aside from that, yeah, she had some, some good points. I thought you know it was pretty straightforward, but... I can't get behind it completely because my pedantic side is disturbed by the way she framed the separability idea. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Last call. Was there anything else that stuck out to you about the case or do you think we've covered everything at this point? I mean, I think we've covered a lot more than, than, uh, than I would have thought we'd cover. We did cover quite <laughs> my, a my bit. My apologies. Yeah. No, no. I think that's great. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful that you're able to, work through it. And you obviously read it, which made it a lot easier. I know. Mean, uh, I think, it's an interesting uh, case. as I said, well, it, I mean, yes, it is. It, it is definitely for someone who enjoys this stuff. It's really interesting. Uh, as a useful little piece of information, I could still tell students, it has little portions that give you a nice little overview of some of the areas of arbitration, including sections on Dell, if you want to get up to speed with Dell. I think the unconscionability the way they've laid it out is also interesting. If, you, if you're having trouble figuring out what unconscionability means, it's still useful for that. Um, and like I said, although I don't, I don't really agree with the way Justice Brown went about analyzing, because I think he kind of missed a big piece of the puzzle, which is, uh, I, maybe this will be my last point that I make. So he is, his, his obsession was public policy and the access to a forum um, the problem that I saw in his decision is that he he assumed that an arbitration agreement ousts the jurisdiction of a court, which to me is a conflation of a forum clause. A forum clause is when you say, we are going to 
have our dispute heard, let's say, in the courts of Korea. Now, now you're really ousting Canada as a jurisdiction. But an arbitration agreement doesn't do that. You know, one thing that could have happened here, and this is just a thought experiment to just show this is how I might have responded to Justice Brown. I say, well, if the case, maybe he starts the case and it's abandoned, or let's assume the case even went forward in the Netherlands and Mr. Heller decided he didn't want to make the argument, so a default award was, was rendered against him, whatever happened, and then he commences his, his case in an Ontario court, Uber would take the award and ask the Ontario court to recognize it. That's usually what you do when you've won an arbitration and somebody nevertheless tries to go to court. And what's interesting is at that stage in an Ontario court, all Mr. Heller would have to say is, well, the reason I don't want you, Ontario court, to recognize that award is that it offends Ontario's public policy. Because I wasn't able to argue it or wasn't able to travel to the Netherlands exactly. or whatever. Exactly. Okay. Which means what we're seeing is there's no ouster of the Ontario jurisdiction. It's maybe just postponed. Right. But the postponement, it does what? It doesn't do a whole lot because all he has to do is start it and let Uber try and, and argue no, but we already have an award that says we're right and he's wrong. And that would also be true that if you were really concerned, and the U.S. figured this out in 1985, which is why it gets a little bit frustrating when, when our courts are kind of behind a bit. The U.S. figured out that, okay, even if we send a case elsewhere and we don't like the way the arbitrators have handled it, and this was a U.S. Supreme Court that was talking about the Sherman Act, their competition law. And there was concern that a foreign tribunal made up of no Americans might never even apply the Sherman Act to resolve the dispute. And they said, well, that seems to be against our policy. And where they were really smart, they said, well, actually, no, let's let it go. If it turns out that they did respect our law, or at the very least, if the law they applied is consistent with our law, because I think that's one of the issues here, is Dutch law consistent with Ontario law or not? If the answer is yes, well, we have no problem. We'll recognize that award. We'll give it our stamp of approval when it comes back here. But if it doesn't, then we're not going to give it our stamp of approval, and that award will have no meaning in our country. It's sometimes spoken of as a second look doctrine. So, so there, there are a lot of ways that this could have actually been dealt with. Uh, the Supreme Court just chose to do a different thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's a nice way to put it. They chose to do it differently, maybe not how arbitration people would think about it. Um, they had a particular conclusion that they wanted, and they got there. But you know, now that might have some consequences on, uh, on arbitration in Canada going forward. Well, I think so. I'll be speaking at a webinar this Friday, and, and I, I, I do think, and it's a webinar with international arbitration-minded people, I, I, I am curious to see if they're going to think that this could be a bit of a problem. You know, I see it as, at the very least, if I were to give legal advice on the state of arbitration law in Canada, I would have to mention this case. And I would also have to mention that there is this discretionary ground under a real prospect that a matter won't proceed to arbitration as a way to invalidate an arbitration agreement. And I think that'll scare some non-Canadians. They might just say, okay, well then, let's not make Canada where we arbitrate. Let's go somewhere else. Well, uh, I'll let you save something for the webinar then, but uh, I'm glad you did mention it because this has been incredibly interesting. And for those listeners who just cannot get enough, is there anywhere else you'd recommend where they can keep learning about these topics, uh, either this case or ICA more generally, the webinar, for example? Yeah, so the webinar, it's, the, um, it's, a, new, it's a new journal that I'm one of its editors, one of the, I think the case managers in the new issues in arbitration. It's called the Canadian Journal of Commercial Arbitration, CJCA, and it's out of, it's a Queen's Law and Juris, which is an international journal organization, and they put out the journal twice a year. And this is uh, a webinar that we're putting on after the Uber case, because it is an important case. And if you go to the CJCA website, you can see, you can register. It's free. We don't charge. We're not interested in charging people to learn about arbitration.
Well, I'm sure many of our listeners will be looking forward to that. But in any event, thank you for taking the time at length to explain this case to us. It's, uh, it's really, really been an interesting, interesting discussion uh, and explanation. So thank you so much. Well, Ryan, it's my pleasure. And thank you for your interest. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.